0: right, ladies and gents, if you've got your Bible with you, click it open to Matthew 16, verses 21 down to verses 27. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Feel free to follow along in whatever uh, version you have with you, and of course, it's behind me on the screen, as always. Uh, Let me read. Matthew 16, verse 21. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be? For someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they've done. All right. Um, We're continuing on in our series. Yeah, perfect. Thank you, Nick. Leave it there. Um, On uh, vacation verses, we're kind of just seeing um, what uh, what comes out of some of the gospel readings and a really good one, I think, tonight. I'm going to pray and we'll jump into it. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, just thank you for an opportunity to come now before your word and to read it and to hear it. And Lord, I pray that wherever we're at, whether we've had a good week or a rough week, whether um, we're relaxed and chilling or whether we're kind of stressing about um, the year that's just about to start or... Lord, I just pray wherever we're at, Lord, you'll have a word for us. You'll have a word that uh, ministers to us, that uh, opens up our hearts, Lord. So I I pray, Lord, that uh, that you might speak uh, to all of us here tonight, Lord, and pray that I might speak truthfully and clearly of your word. We just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where you've got News that's kind of so full-on, that's so extreme, that when you first heard it, you kind of struggled to accept it. You know what I mean? Like something you hear and you just like, it takes a while to sink in what's actually being said. Like uh, the first time I heard that um, the towers had fallen on 9-11, I remember just going, what? Like it took me a while for that to sink in. Like could that really be real? Or just like when I heard that Blake from The Bachelor, who had proposed to Sam Frost, dumped her for Louise. I mean, oh sorry. I mean, what? You know? Mind explosion. How could that possibly be? Right? Jesus and the disciples are, um, you know, going through this kind of amazing ministry time that's happening um, for him. Um, But he tells them this really kind of shocking news. And I think they struggle to accept what it is that they're hearing. Um, Often when you hear really full on news, it's like, um, it's often someone's passing, isn't it? That's something which is hard to accept when you first hear it, particularly if it's sudden. If it's a sudden passing, it's a really it can be really hard to accept. Um, sometimes it's good news. Sometimes it's like, oh, I've won the lotto. And it takes a while to sink in that you won the lotto or whatever. That doesn't happen to many people. Um, uh, but the disciples, they get some really unexpected news for the first time from Jesus telling them that he is actually going to die soon. That he's kind of on the path to his suffering and his death. And on hearing it, they kind of struggle to accept the implications of what he's saying. Have a look. Verse 21, let me read that again to you. Um, From the time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and raised on the third day. So, you know, he's naming all of the powerful people in their world. The teachers, the chief priests, the elders. He's like, you know, these people, naming them, are going to get me. These people are after me. Um, It won't be long. Peter, in, in verse 22, takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. Often when we we think of the disciples and the way they respond to some of the things they see and some of the teachings they hear, we kind of think of them as kind of just thick, like they're a bit dull, like they just don't get it. And sometimes that's because they portray themselves as being a bit thick and a bit dull. Um, And Peter is the one who always jumps in and often seems to get it wrong. But I don't think it's really fair to characterise Peter here in that way, as kind of being a bit thick and a bit dull. I don't think his response is about stupidity. I think his response is um, a very natural human reaction to hearing some terrible, terrible news. If someone who you love comes to you and says, I'm going to die soon, what's your first reaction? It's like, no, no, you're not. Whatever it is, we'll beat it. That's your first reaction, isn't it? And if someone comes to you and says, "Um, these these people are out to get me, they're going to take my life, what's Peter's response? He's like, no way. Never. It's like, I'm not gonna let anyone harm you. Like, he's like, over my dead body, Jesus. Will this happen to you? Um, this is the the picture from the Chosen. If you've seen the Chosen, I really do enjoy the portrayal of Peter in the Chosen. It's such an interesting way to to think of Peter. Um, if you've seen it, he's this real rough and tumble guy. Um, he's he's really streetwise. You know, he's been in a lot of a few fights in his time. He's always kind of on the edge of doing the dodgy thing and it kind of just lives a life of extremes. Um, and in the show, he sees himself as Jesus's protector because he's the streetwise guy. He's the guy who knows how the world works. And Jesus, this, you know, lovely teacher or whatever, is just floating around and he's like, oh, you know, he's, he's getting in the way and he's like, he's, when, the, when the Roman guards arrive, he's the first person to jump in front of them and talk to the Romans and try and, you know, calm them Or He's the one who goes to Jesus and says, okay, it's time to go. It's getting, it's getting a bit out of... He's the kind of the protector, right? Um, and we know that that's how Peter kind of was because uh, he, you know in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest him, what does Peter do? He pulls his sword and he attacks one of the guards, chops his ear off. Jesus says, no, that's not what we're doing, and he heals the man and puts his ear back on. Um, but this is Peter is like the bodyguard, right? He kind of sees himself as Jesus' bodyguard, his protector. So when Jesus comes to him and says, um, I'm going to die at the hand of the chief priests and laws, He just says, never, no, I will not let that happen. Never, Lord. Don't say that, because I won't let it happen, right? Not, you know, over my dead body. But on hearing this response, that's from Peter's heart. It's a heart response, isn't it? It's a heart response to what Jesus shared. On hearing that, um, Jesus gives him this really harsh rebuke uh, in verse 23. Peter turns to Jesus, sorry, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind and concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, when you read it, it sounds so harsh, doesn't it? You're like, Ooh, ouch, that would have hurt hearing that from Jesus when he's kind of pouring his heart out to Jesus, like saying, You know, I'll be with you. You know, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. The passage earlier is when Jesus says to the disciples, "Um, uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly answers, "Um, you're the Christ. In in that instance, the words of Peter are actually the words of God. It's like they're divinely inspired, that he is revealing to all those there a a great spiritual truth, that this is the Christ, that Jesus is not just a normal man, he's something much more. But here, just a few verses later, um, the words that come out of Peter's mouth, Jesus attributes to being that of the enemy, Right? And I think what he's rebuking, he's not saying to Peter, you're the devil. But what he's saying is the words that you're saying here, that's from the enemy. What's coming out of your mouth, that's the enemy. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, tempter. Right? I will not hear what you have to say because as he says, you are a stumbling block to me. Right? Um, and I wonder if it's, it's a stumbling block because what Peter is saying is actually kind of tempting to Jesus. You know, like, yeah, maybe I don't have to die. You know, he, he tells them, I'm going to have to suffer and die. And Peter says, no. And maybe Jesus is kind of tempted by that thought. Like, yeah, maybe that would be good. He And he, he recognises that what, Jesus, what Peter is saying, a heartfelt thing, is actually what the enemy wants. Right? They're, they're, they're the words of the tempter. Tempting him into something that he knows his heart's desires, but cannot be. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Jesus pray? He prays, Lord, take this cup from me, not my will but yours. You know, he, he prays, Lord, if there's another way, but there isn't. There's this temptation in what Peter is saying. When he says you don't have to die, Jesus sees that as the work of the enemy tempting him to something that he knows cannot be. Um, then he gives this amazing response about what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. He says, Like that's such like an amazing passage. I almost don't need to preach, because it's like that passage says it all, but then I also could do three sermons. I won't. I'll just do one. Um, there's heaps there. much more there than I can um, untouch on, but uh, then I can cover, but I'm going to touch on a few things. Um, first thing we have to pick up is that first line: Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, deny themselves. And take up their cross. What does that mean? What does that mean to pick up their cross? When Jesus is is referring to something that hasn't yet happened, perhaps he knows that it will—a time when he will pick up his cross. But he doesn't mean for all those there who are going to follow him that you're literally going to have to pick up a cross and walk to your death. He's not saying, on some kind of legalistic way, "Yeah, just pick up a piece of wood and carry it around for a bit," and that's following me. Now, obviously, it's it's imagery, isn't it? He's he's painting a picture of what it means to be a follower of him. So what is that picture? What is the thing that he's trying to communicate? What does it mean for us to be someone who picks up our cross and follows him? Well, let's take a step back and think, what does it mean for Jesus to pick up his cross and follow him? Well, it means um, denying himself, and it means putting the kingdom first. We've already mentioned that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he, he denies what he wants of himself and says, Lord, uh, your will be done. He puts the kingdom first and he puts others first too. Uh, and if that's what it means for Jesus to pick up his cross, then in, in a similar way, that's what it means for us. Picking up our cross means to deny our own personal wants and desires and to put kingdom first, to deny what we want for ourselves and for our lives and put the needs of those around us before the needs of ourselves. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was like, man, I don't know if we're that good at that. I don't know if the modern 21st century church, you know, the, 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 the modern church in 2023, Sydney, Australia, I don't know if we're that good at doing that, actually, denying ourselves and picking up our cross. Uh, and following Christ. Um, doesn't seem to be a whole heap of denying ourselves, I think, for the church these days. You know, we're, we, we always talk about how we did in blessed times, and it's, it's very true, isn't it? <clears throat> you know, we're in a season where there's a lot of churches uh, around that, um, you know, are struggling, they're, they're aging, they're dwindling, all of that kind of stuff. And there's lots of reasons for it, but you know, if I'm being critical, and I often am, so forgive me, um, I think to myself, oh, you know what the problem was, for a lot of these places, is that you spent the last couple of decades not denying yourself and picking up your cross, but you spent the last couple of decades kind of doing the things that were comfortable for the people who you had. You, you were making the members comfortable when what you probably should have been doing is what Jesus is talking about and making them uncomfortable. You should have been actually denying the things that you guys liked and were good for you and actually picking up your cross and thinking, what what does kingdom want? What what, what is best for the kingdom here? Um, What's best for the community around us? Um, And not just worry about keeping our members happier. Uh, If I'm being critical, I think the church often falls into that trap of thinking more about keeping ourselves happy than we do about this idea of being a people who lay down our lives to pick up a cross. Um, even over the years, you can see how this uh, idea of self-interest rather than self-denial um, has even become a part of the evangelical identity, like the identity of the modern church. It's, it's even woven into a lot of places where it's not about self-denial, it's actually about self-interest. It's actually about you know personal gain. I was at a youth camp years ago and the speaker was doing his thing and in one of the talks he was like, kids... God wants you to have an Xbox. And I, we looked, a couple of leaders looked at each other like, well, where are we going here? I'm <laughs> not too sure about this. And he went, like, yep, you, you become a Christian, you pray, God will give you an Xbox. It was like a new Xbox had just been released, so it was the hot thing, right? He was from a church that was kind of deep into this prosperity doctrine, this idea that being a Christian meant getting these blessings from God, these physical, monetary, whatever, blessings from God. Um, And you hear that kind of stuff and you think, doesn't he say to lay your life down and pick up a cross? Like, I don't think he says, hey, guys, follow me, you'll get Xboxes, you know? Part of me is thinking half of these kids have already got an Xbox anyway. So like, that's, it's not gonna, it's not a ploy that's going to work with them very well. Um, But Jesus says, um, pick up your cross, not pick up blessings and wealth and success, not pick up as many Xboxes as you can carry, Um, Yet that self-interest has become a part of the identity of the modern church that we need to be careful about because when you read passages like this, you just think, wow, does that not say the complete opposite of what some of our our church and some of our identity has said over the years? Uh, Verse 25, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And that's a profound verse, is it not? Being right with God, being um, in a good relationship with him, um, living his way, finding life and finding life to the full isn't about picking things up and getting more. It's actually about what you lay down. It's not about receiving more. It's actually about shedding what you have Putting it down so that you might pick something else up, new in its a place. You might pick up life and life to full. You might pick up real life, how life is meant to be lived. Um, there was this missionary um, born well, in the 1920s. You know, about 100 years ago now. This guy, his name was Jim Elliot, and he had this burning passion for missionary work. And he ended up heading to Ecuador to do mission work in Ecuador. Um, and he was doing work um, with some of the Amazonian tribes, which um, to this day, are still there, and to this day, are a dangerous people group to approach. Um, we were in, in Ecuador doing, a, uh, doing an Amazon tour, and the tour guide said, "Oh, I've seen a couple of times in his life, you know, he goes in there constantly with, on tour groups, seen a couple of times some um, native tribesmen, and when you do, you just go. You just turn around and you leave, because when they see outsiders in their tribal lands, Um, they can be quite defensive and quite dangerous. Anyway, um, that's exactly what happened to Jim. Not too long into his ministry there, approaching a new tribe, he was attacked, he was killed, he was speared to death. He died at the age of 28 to um, uh, an Amazonian tribesman. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote a book about his life. Um, She wrote a number of books, but Um, One of the first ones was a book about her husband, Jim, uh, and she used his diary as a source for a lot of what she wrote. And um, in his diaries, she found this prayer, this prayer that Jim prayed um, to God and had, had written down of himself. He wrote, "'Father, take my life, yea, my blood, if you will. "'Consume it with your enveloping fire. "'I would not save it, for it is not mine to save. "'Have it, Lord.' Have it. Pour out my life as a sacrifice for the world. Blood is only of value as it flows before your altar. Jim's life was tragically short, but yet in his 28 years, he'd found real life. Like he'd found it. I think he understood it. Um, He had laid down his life at the foot of the cross and he said, God, my life is yours. What would you do with it? would you have it? He knew what it was to pick up his cross and follow Christ. Not in the sense that he ended up dying. Like That's not what I mean. He knows what he means to pick up his cross. But he knows um, what it means to say to God, um, my life is yours. I'm I'm laying down all that I had that I might pick up something new. Your kingdom first, um, your will be done. And as I was thinking about that, I was like, yeah, that's like, you know, we're, we're unlikely to take it to the full extreme that, that, that Jim Elliot did. But in smaller ways, we can do that exact same thing. When we say to God, you know, God, what would you have me do? I think that's a great prayer every morning as you're on the bus or driving out to wherever it is you're going. Is God, what would you have me do today? What would you, what would you have me say? How would you have me um, show your love to those around me? How would you have me be generous? How would you have me be kind? How would you have me offer prayer, whatever it might be, Lord, you know, like my life is, is for you to use. Lord, let me lay it down at your feet. And in doing so, I might pick up something new in its place. Jesus goes on, verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Uh, U.S. U.S millionaire, Malcolm Forbes, owner of the Forbes magazine, Uh, he died many decades ago now, Um, was famous for living like a lavish lifestyle, parties, yachts, mansions, cars, motorbikes, all of that kind of good stuff. And he's the one who's quoted to first saying, um, a saying maybe you've heard before, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard that one? He was a funny guy, I've watched a bit of an interview with him this week, It was a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was also a bit true because that's kind of how he did live his life. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. Um, But of course, the reality is he who dies with the most toys still dies, isn't it? I don't think you've won anything, right? There's no (laughs) prize for having the most toys. Just like everyone else, you know, naked you come into the world and naked you'll go. There isn't anything you get to take with you. This is is an image of... Uh, king Charles the Great, not the current King Charles, this was King Charles the Great from the 8th century, so quite a while back, um, a long time ago. Uh, 200 years after his death, some, we'll call them treasure hunters, open his tomb um, and uh, go into his tomb to find all the treasures that are in there, because they've heard of this great bounty from this great king from the 8th century that, was, that ruled over a great um, section in, in Europe and around to Rome and all that kind of stuff. And in there they find gold, they find silver, they find all sorts of stuff. But they find a bit of a surprise when they get there. They find the remains of King Charles um, seated on a throne with what's kind of left of um, robes on him, um, basically a skeleton, uh, a crown on his head. In one hand is a scepter and the other hand is the word of God. And I think, oh my gosh, that's such an interesting image, isn't it? If ever there was a man who had gained the whole world, this guy was it, to the point where he's buried with untold wealth and jewels all around him. But I think to myself, man, I wonder where he is now, right? Uh, did, did he lose his life to find it? Um, or did he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Uh, this is kind of like... Going to be the great stumbling block of our generation. You know, when we pass away, we're unlikely to be put in a tomb surrounded by gold and silver, with a throne and a crown and a head and sitting on it, whatever. Right? That's not going to be the case. But as as the, uh, the the historians of the future look back on our era, they will see and think of us as probably one of the most affluent generations, perhaps ever. Like you don't know what the future will hold. We're well, certainly the most affluent generation ever to this point. Um, There hasn't been many places and parts in history where there's been any more affluent than we are. And the question is, um, what will be be our fate? Will we have gained the world and forfeited our soul? Or will we have realised the words of Christ and laid down our lives that we might find it, pick up our cross and follow him? And when you think of it like that, kind of what Jesus is teaching, it boils down to priorities. Like I've spoken about this before, but like, where are our priorities? Where do our priorities lie? You know, if we ranked all of the things most important to us in life, and we, you know, made it one to fifty or whatever it was, you know, where would where would our faith lie? Would it be at the top? Would it be at the bottom? Would it be somewhere in the middle? I don't know, right? For for a lot of us, I think it might be down that bottom end somewhere, right? It mightn't be very high on our priority list. There might be a whole bunch of things above it, like career and homes and lifestyles and images and you know, whatever it is, clothes and holidays, or whatever it is, right? All these sorts of things that somehow we prioritise um, more than our relationship with God. And if we stood back rationally and we looked at our list, we'd probably recognise, man, that probably isn't so healthy. You know, it's like if you, looked, if you stood back and you looked at your life and a whole bunch of things you do, you'd probably say to yourself, oh, I probably shouldn't do that. I probably should eat better. I probably should exercise more. I probably should look after myself better. I probably should prioritise my faith more than I do. I probably shouldn't put all these things above it. But in doing that, I wonder, I, I, I fear, I worry, if we are risking you know, gaining the world and losing our souls. Because what Jesus tells us is something that's radically different, doesn't he? He tells us to lay down our lives and pick up a cross. Um, what I'm talking about seems like a really high standard, doesn't it? It's like, oh man, <laughs> how are we, we going to do that? Like, you know, give everything up to find something new. Like, it's pretty extreme, pretty full-on. Uh, and sometimes it's like we set these goals so high. It's like, I oh mean, I know I'm never going to get there. Um, but I think Christianity is often about having a healthy hypocrisy. Like, we hold a standard that we know is higher than us. We hold a standard that we know we're never actually going to reach. Like, so a little bit being a little bit hypocritical in that. Like, we're never going to be able to do that. We're never going to be able really to to be like Jesus. We're going to fail along the way. Maybe we can do it in parts. Maybe we can do a really great job, but we're always going to fall short in a whole bunch of reasons. And it sounds a bit defeatist to have these goals that we're never ever going to reach. It doesn't sound all that attractive. But of course, if you never um, aim for anything higher than where you already are, you're never gonna grow, hey. If you never have an ideal that is higher than yourself, then how are you gonna be stretched? How are you gonna grow? How are you you gonna actually meet your full potential? You're not, and you can't, um, because it's the easiest way to meet all your goals is just make all of your goals really easy, hey. Make your goals what you're already doing, done. All goals (laughs) achieved, great. But what the faith is, it's actually about setting a goal that is far higher than what we can ever attain, so that in the striving for it, we might stretch ourselves to meet our full potential along the way. Ben, can I invite you guys back up? Now, the alternative is, of course, just to set really easy goals and not worry about it too much. But Jesus tells his disciples in this intense moment when he's revealing to them that he himself will pick up his cross literally, and, and, and walk to his death. He says to them, you too in following me will pick up your crosses. You too in following me will need to find out and know what it is to be a disciple. It's about losing your life, that you might find something in return. And what you find will be far greater than what you laid down. What you find will be life and life to the full. He ends that passage by talking about the return of the Father with his angels, to reward those who have um, followed him and taken that lesson to heart. Let me pray, and I'll hand it over to our band to to play the last song. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We thank you for the way it opens our hearts and our minds to the truth of the world in which we live. Lord, we just pray that as we leave here today, Lord, we might just think in small ways, Lord, what is it that I need to lay down? What is something I need to put down? Something I need to lay down at the foot of your cross, Lord, that I might actually pick up something else better. Lord, wherever you send us this week, Lord, I pray that you might send us out to know, to know you more, to hear, hear you speak Lord to have a a close relationship of prayer Lord to go out into the places where you've sent us and to be a little light for those around us Lord let us be your vessels for good works let us be your vessels for the growth of the kingdom Lord I just thank you for this passage I thank you for this word and Lord uh, I just pray that I will continue to meditate on it um, and uh, and learn more from it as the week goes just pray this now in jesus name amen Amen. let's stand let's sing our final song together guys